Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell. And I'm Simon Cully. And this is our March edition. It's late in April, Simon, and we're just recording March. But we have excuses as always. Well, we'll call them reasons. Uh, let's start off with what you've been busy as, as Dean of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. You're just back from the CPD conference in London, hosted by Cambridge. How did it go? Oh, it was great, actually. Really good idea we had a few years ago to not just necessarily get the people who are local to where the conference happens to be held that year to run the programme, but to actually start sharing it around the different sort of education academic groups across the country. So this time, first time we've done it, Cambridge created the programme, led by Virginia Newcomb and all the amazing people in Cambridge. And it gave it a real different flavour. It got new people on the stage. It got new blood into the conference, new people sharing their ideas. And I thought it was a lot of fun and also a great venue in London, actually. We had a really, really nice time. And any particular highlights? I tried to follow the Twitter verse as much as I could. What were the things that stood out for you? Interesting about the Twitterverse and conferences, there's less tweeting going on around the conferences now. Um, it used to be there's a constant stream of stuff coming through, but I think people are a little bit more nuanced um, around what they do and some really good people putting some great stuff out. Really quite interesting stuff. Some of it was clinical, so changes to the head injury guidelines that are coming out are nice. They're almost out, so we'll be changing about how we use TXA. I'm probably going to two gram boluses in head injury, which is interesting, as opposed to the one gram, one gram thing. Changes to the way that we look at imaging in patients who've had a minor head trauma who are on anticoagulants and it'll now be going to sort of a, a consider a CT rather than do a CT. So some subtle changes, but ones which might actually make quite a big difference in practice. There was a general move actually in the, in the whole conference, particularly on day one. If you went to a, a CPD conference in emergency medicine a few years ago, it really wouldn't have that much for those people who are interested in how we practice in the recess room. And we've changed that probably deliberately actually, because the new curriculum is very much the case that we want people coming out of emergency medicine training to be competent in what I would consider the, the sort of the recess level skills at the point where they're coming out of training. What they do after that, fine, you can go and work somewhere else, I don't mind. But we should be competent in the recess room. And so there's quite a lot of critical care there, a lot of ultrasound, a lot of how we deal with sepsis, fluid management, ventilators, talking about RSI, not necessarily that you're going to be doing it yourself, but you should be aware of what's going on, why we're doing it and how we can make it better or cock it up. And then as always, clinical stuff. And then there's the emotional stuff. We had some great talks with people like Chris Turner, Tessa Davis on education comms, a really great talk on um, environmental emergency medicine and how we can make changes. But for me, standout talk of the conference and um, was from Dinesh uh, Palipana from Australia talking about his experiences of being a registrar, I think it was a registrar, and crashing his car, suffering a, a high cervical injury, um, resulting with significant neurological disability, and his experience of being a patient, his experience of rehab, and then his sort of experience of continuing in his training and becoming an emergency medicine specialist. Utterly inspirational really, really great learning points in there about communicate to patients and the experience of being critically ill or injured absolutely top draw stuff and if you get a chance to watch that and nothing else then please do and of course alongside all of conferences that have been we've got things to look forward to st emlyn's wild the planning is there the countdown on the website tells me that right of right now there's 46 days to go not long at all things are advanced i know you've got more meetings about it today all very exciting and we we've being generously, I think, keeping that early bird discount going for people who still haven't quite had the chance to sign up. We want as many people to join us as possible. So trying to make it as accessible as possible to you all. Simon, you must be pretty excited about it. Yeah, I'm, and uh, the, like all conferences, the sort of the program does evolve a little bit. So just to remind people, we've got a day of basically being tested in the hills, doing scenarios, leadership scenarios, clinical scenarios, which are going to be tricky and really educational, but push people to, to do really quite complex tasks. 
that's going to be a lot of fun. Really well supported, well debriefed, all of those kind of things, obviously, out in the um, the open air. Not just for pre-hospital people. There's lots of um, learning here for anybody who works in hospital. The generic themes, we just happen to be outside. And then at the in-camp day, um, we're going to be basically running a whole series of workshops again around things like expert cardiac, cardiac arrest management, expert trauma management, um, and then some things about how we make the resource room work and how we do things like the zero point survey, how we make things happen in the resource room to quote someone like Cliff Reed from Australia. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then you've got a bit of entertainment in the evening and a beautiful setting. So yeah, come along. It'll be great fun. And please don't worry if you don't regard yourself as an outdoorsy type person. I'm not really either. I mean, I own a pair of wellies, but that's about as far as it would go. But this isn't just about those people who we all see them don't we they're they're on the bike they're in the lycra they're climbing a mountain they're running the london marathon that's not just who this is for it's for like people like me who are slightly old slightly aging slightly overweight and sometimes like to go outside so please do come along it should be amazing get signed up soon that early bird discount will end before you know it and now is the time to get your place so simon let's think about the blog from march just a couple of posts here and we can talk about them in some depth i guess we've got a bit of time the first one was uh, well written by me a journal club article about ruling out acs with a single pre-hospital troponin measurement and before we get into the paper, I wondered if it might be worth us just having a quick chat about troponin, a bit of a reminder. Um, yeah, sure. So troponin is a protein which is um, predominantly in the heart. And when the heart is under stress or damaged or dying, then it gets released from cells and you can detect it in the blood. Ordinarily, you don't really be able to detect that much of it in the blood. And so any rise is significant and it's quite interesting that though i use the word rise there so we're looking for changes in troponin levels what um, rick would call the delta level so change from one to another if you've got changing troponin levels in the setting of somebody who's got symptoms or signs associated with potential chest problems then there is a problem however it does not mean you've had a heart attack it means that the heart is under stress it may have had a heart attack there may be an occlusion but there's lots of other reasons why you might get raised troponins or changes in troponins as well which is why we've always said isn't it ian that if you interpret a troponin, you have to engage your brain. And that is the key, isn't it? That there's a reason the troponin's been released from the heart. And it's because it's under stress, but it's not necessarily a blockage of a vessel. And I think my cardiological colleagues, some of whom have published widely on this to, to point out that not all troponin rises are due to occlusion, would really want us to think about. And just to remember that any troponin rise you need to think about, but the delta is important. So this was a, a study that was looking about the use of pre-hospital troponin measurement in patients with chest pain to try and work out if actually at the roadside, the ambulance pre-hospital teams could just say, do you know what? This is low risk. We'll measure a single troponin. And if that's negative, then we'll be able to say that your risk of a major adverse cardiac event or MACE is so low that we don't need to take you straight into hospital. And we'll think about whether or not we talk to your family doctor and try and get you an appointment there, or just give you some advice about what to do next. This was a study done in the Netherlands. They had a relatively good number of patients, I guess, for this sort of thing. So 863 patients were randomized to the two strategies. One was this pre-hospital strategy where you get the point of care troponin, which took about 15 minutes to run, I think. And the other side of that arm was just standard care where you went to the emergency department. And it, it did OK. It was all right. It was safe. And it seemed to sort of just having to transport some patients. But there's pros and cons to all of this, I guess. There is. I mean, what I really like about this paper is... It's doing what we intuitively, or it's demonstrating what we intuitively do in practice, which is that selecting out a group of patients who we actually don't think are very likely to have 
a significant event anyway. So you're pre-selecting a group of patients who are low risk and then applying a rule out test to them, which makes them even lower risk. And that's great. This is exactly how we should be using diagnostic tests. It demonstrates that people understand how diagnostic tests work. It also demonstrates that you can't use the same test in different groups of patients and expect to have the same results or the same useful results. So I like this paper. And in Manchester, we're doing quite a lot of work around this as well. And also taking it one step further, looking at how you communicate this risk to patients and saying to patients, oh, OK, well, we've demonstrated that your risk is very low. Is that acceptable to you? What do you want to do about it? Some really interesting things that sort of flow around this, particularly about how we consider diagnostic tests, how we interpret them, and then how we communicate them to patients. For me, a lot of this is about that pre-test probability, which I think when you and I first started, we would have accepted that we didn't need to do any test, not least because the test didn't exist. But We've moved on now, haven't we? We need to take our low pretest probability and make it even lower if we can. And the loaded study that Ed Carton did sort of demonstrated this as well. This group that we're testing are low risk to start off with. And perhaps in what I may call the olden days, they never would have got a test at all. And most of them would have been fine. And by most, I mean the vast majority. Here we're reassuring the patients and perhaps importantly, reassuring ourselves that we're not missing a cardiac cause for that chest pain. Of course, it doesn't exclude a non-cardiac cause for chest pain. And that needs thinking about. And whether or not this is applicable in the UK, well, that's another question. We do need to be able to get our ambulance crews back on the road and spending a bit more time with the patient at the roadside or in the house may be seen as a not valuable use of time. But with ambulances queuing outside departments and and everything we're seeing at the moment, about the stress on pre-hospital services, actually the time that's lost may well be a huge gain in the future. The other thing about this, of course, is these are large numbers of patients. <laughs> There's vast groups of patients attending emergency department with low risk chest pain. And if we can manage them differently, more efficiently, or even perhaps not even bring them to hospital at all, redirect them to other services with all those caveats that you said about excluding other causes, absolutely good way to go. But there's a bit in there about uh, the heart score as well with, with our friend Barbara Bacchus explaining because she of course originated that heart score which I'm sure for many of you is part of your everyday practice. So worth having a look at the paper and we've got loads of troponin resources on St Emlyn's not least because Professor Rick Body is such a world leader in this sphere. So if you want to know anything about troponin please take a look. Uh, you will soon become an expert too. The second post was about uh, artificial intelligence. And Simon, this is something I've dipped my toe into recently, and it is fascinating. Just a quick sign up to ChatGPT, and all of a sudden, this world is opened up to you. Uh, this is a post from Stefan talking about why we really shouldn't fear artificial intelligence. What do you think about the whole thing? I think it's very interesting. I mean, it's it's another tool which is coming um, that can help us, particularly if we're trying to do uh, things like write a structured report, put um, a, a marketing plan together for St. Emlyn's. It's good for getting an idea about how you're going to talk something through and to get basic answers. But it's a language generator, ChatGPT. And so it is prone to bring in errors. It's prone to bring in sort of false references or not really check them. It isn't an automatic perfect way to just put you know, write me a paper on this and it'll come out um, perfect that's not going to happen so it's a tool which can assist your writing it's a tool which can assist you making structure to your writing it's a tool which can put structure to an argument it can provide a counter argument or it can write in the style of how you normally write so i trained it the other week i trained it i showed it it was a way of showing it st emlyn's blocks i said what do you think of st emlyn's and it told me all about st emlyn's it said some very nice things and then i said well write me a blog about I can't remember what the topic was now, in the style of St. Emlyn's. And it wrote in the same way, using the same sort of language and the same sort of sentence construct that I did. So that's kind of a bit freaky. But ultimately, at the moment, 
I think these are just tools to assist people who are already doing things as opposed to taking over. But hey, who knows what happens next? I've, as I say, just dip my toe, but it is fascinating. And, and more to come, I think. This is just the beginning. We're going to have all sorts of artificial intelligences. I did something similar. I was um, interested in trying to write some MCQ questions as part of my undergraduate role. And trying to get them to do that in the style that's approved by the Medical Schools Council and GMC. And I just put in, please, can you write some MCQs with this many answers in this style using these caveats? And and up it came. And they weren't all perfect and they weren't all right, but they gave me a starting point. And sometimes when I'm writing, what I just need is a kick and a bit of a start. It won't do the whole thing, but it will definitely get you on the way. And it could be a huge time saver and it could be, for education purposes, an absolute revolution. We're all focused on ChatGPT because it's quite accessible at the moment, but there's a number of other AI search engines. Sorry, AI. Well, there will be an AI search engine very soon because I think Bing is moving over to that model. There's a number of other AI programs out there which may have different levels of access and accessibility. There's AI image generation as well. So you can go to an AI image generation and say, um, draw me a picture of Ian Beards or riding a unicorn over the moon, and it will certainly give it a try. I might do that later. The point is that these are tools to support what we're still doing ourselves. We've not yet, certainly on the stuff that I've been accessing, got to the point where we were being taken over. But it's going to be really interesting in the next few years, particularly for us as educationalists, to be able to spot things like plagiarism, to spot how people are using this in essays and um, submissions. There's some tools which will pick up on that. So you can get automatic tools which will pick up where people have used some of these AI generating tools, but I'm sure it's going to get more complex and more difficult as time goes by. And there will be healthcare applications, I'm assuming too. The most obvious for me is those ECGs that are done when a patient arrives saying they have chest pain, going back to our chest pain discussion, and and they're thrust in front of us and, and we're asked to look at them. There will come a time, I'm sure, when we're happy that it's reliable. I know there's already some evidence that that it's not that bad already, that computer generation. But where we're going to now could be a phenomenal uplift in, in how we use these tools in healthcare. Although the NHS is frustrating, isn't it? We're talking about all of this stuff where we can do all these clever things and then and yet there's times I can't access a patient's records. No. Uh, so let's just hope that other things can catch up in the same sort of way. Clearly, loads more is going to come in this area in the next few years. That was it for March, you know, Simon, just the two posts. That's that's what Easter, a CPD conference and some other bits and pieces do to our blog generation. April is much, much busier. So our next podcast will have lots of posts in, but it gives us a chance to catch up, chance to chat, chance to hear about other things that are going on. Please do have a look at the plan for St. Emily's Wild. We are genuinely excited about this and would love you to join us up in the wilds of the Lake District. As I say, it will have something for everybody. And hopefully, as the sun comes out, the idea of being outside, a bit of a camping experience, won't feel quite so alien as it perhaps did a few weeks ago before the clocks changed. And the idea of venturing outside away from central heating was one that struck fear into my heart. I completely agree. And as we know, the Lake District has absolutely guaranteed weather 365 days a year. And there's absolutely no possibility of, of rain or anything like that. No, it's been beautiful. It's, we've picked a site which is going to be perfect, irrespective of the weather. I think we should guarantee that you and I will do a more common wise rendition of Bring Me Sunshine, uh, whatever the weather. Simon, as ever, it's great to chat. We hope that uh, you're enjoying the content we have on St. Emily's. Please do get in touch. And for now, just take care. Have fun. Thank you.